At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Later in the show, Zoe Carpenter will report from Portland on the ominous developments there. Federal agents in camouflage in the streets attacking protesters over the objections of local and state officials. Also later in the show, Roy Cohn in Donald Trump. Ivy Mirapol will talk about her new documentary on Roy Cohn. It's playing now on HBO On Demand. First up, Naomi Klein on the pandemic shock and the Black Lives Matter protests. Naomi is the inaugural Gloria Steinem Professor of Media, Culture, and Feminist Studies at Rutgers University and a senior correspondent at The Intercept. Of course, she's the best-selling author most recently of On Fire, The Burning Case for a Green New Deal. Her other books include This Changes Everything, the Shock Doctrine, and No Logo. She spoke recently in an online conversation for The Nation with Katrina Vandenhuvel, the magazine's publisher and editorial director. Katrina asked Naomi why she thought the current movement for black lives had such unprecedented support from white people. I'm not sure I do totally understand it, but I do think that there is something around a kind of a softening that the pandemic created, even just a slowing down that is happening because our economy has been forced to slow down. And I think there is something in just the speed of capitalism that prevents solidarity and that acts to sever or blind us to the reality of interconnection and interdependence. And COVID even though we are not all impacted by it equally by any means. And, and yes, every disaster does discriminate and heighten pre-existing inequalities. It isn't a great equalizer. It isn't a great leveler. I think we understand this. It is true that an invisible virus that is highly communicable through breath and touch forces us to confront the reality that we are in a biological web. And that, that, that manifested in, a, in an appreciation for, for workers who are systematically devalued in our economy, for people who are systematically discarded and devalued. So we're having to think about people in meat processing plants, and we're having to think about people in Amazon warehouses. And these are overwhelmingly people of color, overwhelmingly black and brown people. You know, these are the people who are caring for our loved ones in their last dying moments. And so I do feel like maybe those interdependencies made visible created a, a richer context for solidarity in these uprisings, perhaps. That's just a theory. Then Naomi was asked about whether she thought of our current situation as a war against the coronavirus. I actually don't think the pandemic is a war. And I don't think war metaphors work for it. I think the pandemic refuses logics of domination. And that's why 
if we look at where the outbreaks are, follow the macho, you know, dominance obsessed men the world over. And, and we see, you know, who, 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 who's tried to bully this thing and, and treat it like an enemy? And who's, who, who, who's in isolation right now? Jair Bolsonaro getting attacked by birds, which is an incredible metaphor. Uh-huh. <laughs> Let us recall that the birds like Bernie, but they don't seem to like Jair Bolsonaro. But yeah, so Brazil uh, with, under Jair Bolsonaro, obviously the United States under Donald Trump, India under Modi, Russia, Israel, the Philippines, and, and, and the countries that are dealing with it best are some of the countries that are led women, not just women, feminists, <laughs> women with a, you know, a, a, a non-dominance-based leadership style, open to interconnection. And, and it isn't you know, the apps that are doing it for them. It's the infrastructure of care. A listener wanted to know who Naomi thought Joe Biden should pick to be his vice presidential candidate. Do you mind if I don't play this game? All I, all I can say is that we need somebody very, very, very strong who can actually dismantle the neoliberal project. I don't think we're going to get a socialist as Treasury Secretary, but I do think that if we want anything remotely resembling a Green New Deal, which harkens back to the scale of change that we had during the original New Deal, but has reparations built into it, including reparations for the original New Deal, which systematically excluded African-American workers, um, discriminated against immigrants, um, discriminated against women, and so on. We need somebody who has has that kind of a track record. And so there's not that many people who I think would would fit that that, uh, sort of a definition. Uh, but I think it's a very important one. I would say the most important factor that we should be looking for is somebody who really has the ability to energize uh, the base because it's still, it's really just about winning. And frankly, that's not that powerful a position, which is why I'm not that hung up on it beyond that it just be somebody who's better at giving speeches than Joe Biden, who's pretty bad at it. You know, I'm just thinking just in terms of not taking anything for granted and understanding that Trump will, will, will try to steal this thing as well. Another listener asked about the movement on the right to refuse to wear masks and demanding the opening up of businesses and what we should do about that. Yeah, I think that's really important. And, and um, that movement is a frightening one and it isn't going away no matter what happens in November. We need to be thinking really strategically and longer term about how we defang that movement and prevent a different candidate from running on the right who is more lucid. I mean, I'm chilled to the bone at the idea of a Tucker Carlson run for president. I think that would be very scary. And I think if Biden blows it in his first term, we could be set up for a a more effective um, American fascism and white supremacy. And in thinking about, you know, what is the fuel that is feeding the fires of fascism. How, how do we dampen it? And I don't mean just like throwing money at it, like trying to deal with this sort of economic precarity. I think, it, I think it's that, his, that hard historical work. And I think that that is something that there was some hope that Obama would do that, right? When he delivered his, what was called the race speech, right? After the Reverend Wright controversies. And he talked, he gave this incredible speech 
it's really worth rewatching. And there was some hope that an Obama presidency would would lead a process of, of, of kind of truth and reconciliation. But that didn't happen, right? There was the, there was the race speech and then there was a period of kind of, of, of colorblind policies. I think it is so urgent that we use these, these years that we have now. And I think, I think we've got a couple of years where we are gonna be moving slower as we try to dance with this virus. I think we should, we, I think, we should think of them as the years of repair. I think we should call them that. <laughs> Naomi also talked about what she called the pandemic shock doctrine and something she calls the screen New Deal, the virtual workplace. We have gotten under, those of us who have, who have had the luxury of sheltering in place, and it is a luxury, we have gotten a fast forward version of a vision of the future that, the, that, that, was, it, that, that was coming towards us anyway. When my Rutgers class uh, that I teach went online, we'd had a couple of weeks off and, and there was spring break and we, we came back and we, had, we were all on Zoom and I have a wonderful, wonderful group of students that I've been working with um, in the semester doing a course on social movements and technology. And we did a go around and one of my, just sort of checking in and you know, many of them had been in residence and they were suddenly back in their family homes. And one of my students said something that's really haunted me. She said that what, what she found most disturbing about lockdown is how little she had to change her life. And she realized that she was already so isolated, that she was already doing so much on technology. She said, I just had, it's just actually not that much of a change. And that's what's scary. So we were already headed in this direction, having everything delivered, everything streamed, everything mediated by technology, our relationships replaced by Facebook friends and Twitter followers. And, and it was making us unwell, thinking about the crises before the crisis. There was already an epidemic of depression and loneliness and addiction related to all of this. And yet, you know, if you're Eric Schmidt, former CEO of Google, chair of Governor Cuomo's task force on reopening New York, what you see in the lockdown, and, and Schmidt has been very open about this, has been a vast experiment in, the, in, in remote learning, as he said. From Schmidt's perspective, he thinks people are seeing that remote learning is in many ways better than in-person learning, and telehealth is in many ways better than in-person health. These are backdoor privatizations. I guess this is the most important thing that I would just stress is that our public schools are being handed over to private tech companies and it's being called remote learning. It is backdoor privatization by way of, of tech platform. And we did it because we sort of had no choice and under the sort of fog of kind of panic and sure Google Classroom and Zoom and all of that. But we need to protect our public schools. And if we are going to, if, if we are gonna have to be using more technologies in order to work and learn, then we need to treat them as a public commons. We can't do this through backdoor privatization. So this needs to be a broader conversation, which balances the need for different kinds of investments. You know, I talked about the importance of access to nature. We should be having a, you know, it, it, it's, if, if we spent a fraction of the resources and energies that we have spent retraining teachers to be able to run a Zoom classroom or, and a, or a Google classroom, 
If we did some training and allowed them to, to learn about how to do outdoor education, we could be having our young students in the spring learning outdoors, you know, um, doing math in the forest. I mean, it is possible. Outdoor education is, is incredible. And especially for who have special needs, many of them learn better in nature. But we're not doing that. We're just immediately migrating to a very profitable model for the tech companies. So I don't want to say that, like, I don't want to come across as saying that the technology isn't important. I think it, it is. But I think we're, it, we're, we're, it's being used to foreclose on a lot of different kinds of solutions that involve investing in people, right? Like there's all of this, I talked earlier about this idea that, it, you know, at the beginning, we were told that the, the countries that were doing well with COVID were doing well because they had submitted to these incredibly intrusive surveilling apps. What we know now is that the countries that have done well are ones that that have an actual social infrastructure, a public health care system, which which doesn't just do contact tracing, but then contacts people and says, what do you need to quarantine? Can we pay for your hotel? Can we, you know, this is why I was mentioning that, you know, in the 1930s, the government was building isolation huts and delivering them to people uh, so that they could quarantine. That's what it means to actually support people to do what is necessary in the face of a pandemic. It requires not just technology, it requires people who are checking in on you and it requires money to help people stay home from work get food, have childcare, walk the dog. So this is an opportunity to have a community health corps, create, once again, huge numbers of jobs for young people who are facing unemployment and older people. So I am worried about these sort of te this techno-solutionism. The thing that I find actually hopeful about it is that I don't think people like it very much. And, and because this rolled out faster than was the original plan, I think we're a little bit like the frog in boiling water with to use a really overused metaphor that if they had if this had rolled out more slowly and incrementally we've got would have gotten more used to kind of getting all of our entertainment from our television sets and all of our relationships over zoom and over over social media but because it happened so quickly I think we're more in touch with the toll it's taking on our mental health. There's more conversations about how important touch is, how important feeding all of our senses is, that we are not just our eyes staring at screens. I think we need to hold on to that because it will evaporate as we get used to it. So I think we need to really stay in touch with the fact that this experiment, and it has been an experiment, the, the results are disturbing. <laughs> um, they're not, it's not what Eric Schmidt thinks it is, that we're all just like, yeah, let's, let's keep homeschooling forever. Let's keep remote learning forever. Um, our kids hate it for the most part. Let's remember that. You can listen to or watch Naomi Klein's full conversation with Katrina Vanden Heuvel at thenation.com backslash events. The news from Portland has been ominous. An aggressive federal campaign to suppress protests with anonymous federal agents in camouflage sweeping through the streets, flooding the streets with tear gas, shooting projectiles from paintball guns at protesters, grabbing activists and detaining them in unmarked vans, and all this over the objections of state and local officials. 
For comment and analysis, we turn to Zoe Carpenter. She's a contributing writer for The Nation, and she received the James Aronson Award for Social Justice Journalism in 2018. Her writing has also appeared in Rolling Stone and other publications, and she is based now in Portland. Zoe, welcome back. Thank you for having me. Well, please remind us about the basic timeline of how all this developed. We read that there have been more than 50 days of protests. What has that been like? Well, the protests started very shortly after the killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis, as they did in many other cities and towns around the country. Um, and in Portland, they were pretty huge for many weeks in a row, you know, thousands of people filling up bridges and shutting down the interstate at least once and pretty diverse in character. There were some socially distanced protests, some car convoys, and then these big marches. In large part, uh, extremely peaceful. The vibe was really positive, although, of course, outraged not only about Floyd's killing, but also with systemic policing issues and issues of racism within Portland itself. What do we know about who the protesters actually are? I think it's, it's hard to say exactly because it's people who represent all sorts of walks of life um, and all sorts of groups. I mean, you definitely have people who identify as anti-fascists. Um, you have people who identify as moms. So there's been a whole group of moms wearing yellow and bike helmets. Um, the scene down there is really interesting until the police spray tear gas or the federal agents spray tear gas and sort of respond in these dis disproportionate ways. Um, the energy downtown is very communal. Um, you know, people are passing out vegan stew and there's a, a barbecue group, Riot Ribs, which has been showing up and staying every night to feed people for free. Um, so there is this sense of solidarity. There are medics, there are people handing out water. It's teenagers. You know, there was the Navy veteran who was there a few days ago who got his hand broken by federal officers when they beat him. So um, it's really people from all over the city representing all sorts of different things who are there because they believe that Black Lives Matter and that there needs to be policy change. Thank you for mentioning the wall of moms. I think that is an innovation of contra Portland's contribution to the history of protest in America. What, ha what happened with the wall of moms? Well, some of the moms got tear gassed, you know, the, the moms were down there. Again, it was, there were so many of them. I'm sure that um, many people had different experiences, but um, the moms I think were sort of trying to arrange themselves in certain ways to protect other protesters. And last night, earlier in the evening, they were singing Hands Up, Don't Shoot in a kind of lullaby style, which was quite evocative and um, I think presented a, a pretty different picture of the protesters than what you hear from the Trump administration. There developed kind of a regular pattern, which is that these large demonstrations would go on and then a smaller group of people would end up converging downtown around the Justice Center and the federal courthouse, which is um, in downtown Portland. And that's where most of the intense clashes with local police and now with the federal agents have occurred and are still occurring. And how have the Portland police dealt with these protests in comparison to what we've seen in the last couple of days from these anonymous federal people? Yeah, that's a good question. And one of the things I'm hearing from activists who have been on the ground at these protests for 50 plus days um, is that there is a sense of continuity between the actions of the local police and the federal agents to a certain extent. And, and what I mean by that is that 
the, the Portland Police Bureau has used tear gas. They've used less lethal munitions, such as rubber bullets, and there have been significant injuries um, among protesters. And so that's been really concerning. There have been court orders against the police department, um, forcing them to stop using tear gas um, quite as indiscriminately as they were using it. And so what we're seeing now with the federal agents that have come in is that they're continuing some of the same tactics, um, kind of taking over the role of spraying tear gas and that sort of thing. So there's a sense of continuity between um, the excessive force that the local police have been using and what the federal agents are, are doing now. But, but isn't there something particularly dangerous and new about unidentified federal agents We've read about them whisking people off the street without charging them for a crime, without due process, over the objections of state and local officials. Yes, absolutely. And there are, there are really serious constitutional questions, civil rights questions about what the federal officials or the federal agents have been doing. And just to back up a little bit, I think... Um, you know, they, they have been in town since the beginning of July and ostensibly are here to protect federal property, such as the federal courthouse. Um, but Oregon Public Broadcasting was the first to break the story of the fact that they were detaining people not on federal property, including people who were not really doing anything, just walking around, leaving a protest, heading home. They weren't identifying themselves. They were jumping out of these unmarked vehicles and grabbing people and then whisking them away to be essentially questioned um, and then released without apparently any kind of documentation of why they were detained or you know, what the outcome was. So that certainly uh, is an escalation with what we've seen from the local police. And tell us about the basic state of the city right now. Trump says it's been engulfed in chaos. Is that really true? <laughs> no, it's not true. And we've heard that not only from Trump, but from the acting secretary of the Department of Homeland Security, and then from the local president of the police union here, who has used a similar phrase in terms of the city being under siege. I think it's important to note that for the vast majority of people in Portland, their lives have been affected far more by coronavirus-related shutdowns than by these protests. The protests are occurring in a pretty small uh, square block radius downtown. And I was out there on Friday night um, when federal agents started spraying tear gas around 10, 20 p.m. And at that time, I walked a few blocks away. Um, there were still families that were out strolling around downtown um, at the same time and seemingly oblivious to the tear gas being sprayed, you know, just a few blocks over. And downtown is very quiet because a lot of the restaurants and obviously businesses are shut down due to coronavirus. Um, and there is a lot of graffiti, but it's not, it's not like there is actually a marauding group of uh, violent protesters that's creating chaos throughout the city whatsoever. Tell us a little more about the police in Portland and the demands for reform, what have the activists been asking for and have they made any progress? Yeah, they have made some progress and, and certainly not um, as much. They, they haven't had political leaders respond to the extent that they hoped, which is why these protests are ongoing. And I, I think it's important to keep in mind why they're out there anyways, which is um, because they're declaring that Black Lives Matter and that the city needs to make real significant changes in policing and, and to other policies that affect people of color in the city. 
Um, one notable victory was um, getting police removed from public schools. And that is a campaign that has been ongoing in Portland for years. And so I think we really saw the wave of activism um, after the death of George Floyd add fuel to these pre-existing um, struggles. There was some money diverted away from the, the police force, but not nearly as much as activists have been calling for. So um, I think there's a sense among people who've been involved in police reform work in Portland for a long time that, um, you know, there, there's some good small progress, but it's pretty inadequate to the scale of, of the problem, considering that the Portland police has a very long history of racist actions and excessive use of force against people of color and people um, experiencing mental health crises. The police has actually been under a federal consent decree due to its excessive use of force. And um, I think there's a sense among many of the people who are still demonstrating that it's going to take much, much deeper reform or even disbanding of the police here to actually address those systemic issues. Trump, in his Sunday interview on Fox with Chris Wallace, agreed that Portland is a dress rehearsal, uh, a testing ground for what he would like to do in other cities. He specifically listed Chicago and New York. Uh, he's also talked about Philadelphia and Detroit and Baltimore and Oakland as potential targets for this kind of federal uh, force intervening. Certainly seems like a move towards, you know, real fascism. What do we know about who these agents actually are? I know their uniforms are unmarked. Yeah, so um, my colleague, Ken Klippenstein, who works in the nation's DC Bureau, he first reported that um, some of the agents who were pulling people off the street into these unmarked cars were from a tactical unit um, of the Border Patrol that are usually used as a you know, counterterrorism type operations as a SWAT team style unit. There are U.S. Marshals here also. Uh, and I think this is particularly alarming when you think of uh, what the Border Patrol and, and are, you know, normally is doing. There isn't a border anywhere near close to Portland. And I think that really speaks to the way that the post 9-11 security state has morphed in its mission. We should also keep in mind that unmarked Department of Homeland Security officials showing up to whisk people away from cities has been occurring for immigrant communities for years. Um, we've seen unmarked immigration officials or unidentified immigration officials show up at courthouses to detain people for immigration violations. And so in a sense, this has been happening and now it's just happening to white people also. But it, it definitely does speak to the way that these uh, bloated agencies are really expanding their, their mission and becoming uh, political tools of a, an administration that um, is worried about winning an election. Yeah, there's something particularly ominous about sending the Border Patrol to attack protesters. Michelle Goldberg wrote in the New York Times on Tuesday, point, she pointed out that Trump failed to get the military to do this. The military has resisted being used against uh, civilians. They're not going to do it. But the Border Patrol is under federal authority, and its leadership is fanatically devoted to Trump. And of course, it's been the center of far-right politics around the border for, you know, a decade. So, you know, of course, we need to talk about what can be done about this. Uh, Nancy Pelosi tweeted on Friday about Portland Trump and his stormtroopers must be stopped, close quote. She didn't say what she planned to do in the House of Representatives about that. But of course, the House 
will soon be voting on a Homeland Security Appropriations Bill. And it's certainly in the, within the power of the House to withhold funding until Trump's fascist tactics in Portland are, are halted. You know, we've heard in the past several years calls to abolish ICE. And I think this really speaks to the need to look not only at ICE, but Border Patrol and other elements of the Department of Homeland Security and, and really think hard, um, as many of us have been doing, but I think that um, sort of mainstream Democrats have been reluctant to about what our entire homeland security apparatus is doing and what it's built for. Um, and it's unfortunate that that conversation seems to be easier to have now that it's um, threatening white American citizens when it's already been threatening a number of other people for many years. So a carpenter reporting from Portland, you can read her at thenation.com. Thank you, Zoe. Thank you so much for having me. Now it's time to talk about Roy Cohn and Donald Trump. For that, we turn to Ivy Mirapol. Her new documentary about Roy Cohn is running now on HBO through July 23rd. It's called Bully, Coward, Victim, The Story of Roy Cohn. Ivy Mirapol is a director and producer of documentaries for film and TV, best known for Indian Point and Heir to an Execution. Ivy, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. I guess we should start with your own relationship with Roy Cohn, which of course means your families, just in case some people don't know about that. Sure. So my, uh, my grandparents were Ethel and Julius Rosenberg. Uh, my father is the eldest son, Michael Mirapol. Um, their elders, eldest son, and they were executed in 1953 when my father was 10 and my uncle was seven. And they have kind of gone down in history as the, the so-called Adam spies. The key witness against the Rosenbergs was David Greenglass, the brother of Ethel. He later admitted his testimony was false, but his lie sent his own sister to the electric chair did Roy Cohn, who was the prosecutor in this case, know that David Greenglass was lying about the Rosenbergs? Yes. David Greenglass was coached by Roy Cohn, who was the young, ambitious uh, assistant prosecutor in the case. And he helped create a story. Greenglass had initially said um, when he was first arrested that his sister, Ethel Rosenberg, my grandmother, had nothing to do with this. And then by the time they got to trial, he was had changed his tune. And the story was that she had done the typing. And what that meant was that she had apparently typed up, she had allegedly typed up some notes that would have been passed on to their Soviet handlers. And this wasn't true. And David Greenglass himself admitted it years later um, on a 60 Minutes interview where he was in disguise. Um, and Sam Roberts broke that story. He's a journalist from the New York Times, and he wrote a book called The Brother. People are interested in finding out more about this. So let's clarify at the top here. Julius Rosenberg spied for the Soviet Union, but he didn't give them the secret of the atom bomb. Ethel Rosenberg was innocent. They were framed by the prosecution which apparently wanted them to name higher-ups in the Communist Party as heads of aspiring. This isn't what I say. This is what Alan Dershowitz says in your documentary. Is that the same Alan Dershowitz who was one of Trump's lawyers in his impeachment trial? <laughs> yes, one and the same. 
this is what how Cohn presented it to, to Dershowitz. They didn't have enough evidence. So he was willing to, as Dershowitz says, embellish and manufacture evidence to, to frame guilty people. And, and that's how Dershowitz puts it. And what does Alan Dershowitz think about, quote, framing guilty people? He condemns what Cohn did. And um, for all of Alan's, you know, more recent actions and that, we, that leaves us all kind of scratching our heads, I think, you know, he's that kind of prosecutorial misconduct would be abhorrent to Alan Dershowitz. Roy Cohn gave us Donald Trump. That's what Michael Mirapol says in your film. What exactly does that mean? How did he do that? So when I set out to make this film, I knew that Cohn and Trump were friends and, you know, that Cohn had represented his father, Fred Trump's real estate business, and then Donald Trump's business. Um, but I didn't know much more than that. What we discovered is just how involved Cohn was in planting the seed of the, the in Donald Trump's head that he could be a bigger figure on the national and political stage. He first introduced this Queens boy to the glittering life of New York City, I'm in Manhattan, and introduced in a lot of power players and the political world that Cohn was already inserted in. But more crucially, he, can, he set him up with journalists like Lois Romano, who's one of our wonderful subjects, who has the memories and notes and tapes of her interviewing Trump at Cohn's behest. Cohn sets this up to set the stage for Trump to begin making his way into Washington, D.C. And convince, Cohn convinces Trump that he could even envision himself being the nuclear arms negotiator. This is during the Cold War, which is we look at and it's just uh, absurd. But and and the other crucial thing, and this is pretty timely, again, is that Cohn introduces him to Roger Stone and Paul Manafort, the people who got Trump elected in 2016. So in some ways, the worst thing about Roy Cohn wasn't just the terrible things he did. You show that at least one of the worst things about Roy Cohn was the way the New York elite worked with him, supported him, went to his parties. And we're not talking here just about the mafiosi who, who he represented in court. Let's name some names here. Roy Cohn was a master at working in a wide range of circles. And it's no accident that we, ha we have a photo of Chuck Schumer, a young congressman, that is a perfect example of what we're talking about. He cultivated political figures, liberal political figures, Democrats. Um, Norman Mailer became a close friend. He helped Norman Mailer. Norman Mailer helped him, even though they were diametrically opposed, apparently, on so many issues and subjects. Barbara Walters was a dear friend. Um, he cultivated the press. Cy Newhouse was one of his, was his best childhood friend and they stayed very close. Rupert Murdoch, George Steinbrenner. I remember talking to Jeffrey Epstein years ago, who was who's this, you know, famous editor of Random House and created the New York Review of Books, a wonderful, intellectual, thoughtful person. And I said, how did you guys, how everyone wanted to hang out with Cohen all the time? I just don't get it. And he said, you know, he had a black heart, but he was wonderful to be with. <laughs> You, uh, you've been quoted in other interviews saying that uh, despite all the horrible things that Roy Cohn did, and not just to your family, 
uh, you decided to have a little empathy for him in making this film. Why Why did you want to have empathy for him in this film, and, and how do you do it? To back up, the, the first time I started really thinking about Roy Cohn as more than just one of a list of many bad figures in our family history was when I saw the AIDS quilt. Um, and I was a college student. And the first panel we saw was a panel devoted to Cone that says bully, coward, victim. And that's where we borrow our title from. And it, and it was one of those moments in life where it struck oh, this person, this is the guy who prosecuted my grandparents and who is up there with J. Edgar Hoover and my family and my, you know, my community's um, evil list of evildoers. But wow, he was gay and he died of AIDS. So I thought that kind of just that that was the beginning of this this uh, pursuit of empathy. And then I, you know, all these years later, you decide to make a film about someone you can't it's not going to, it's, it's not going to be effective if you just, you know, um, do, which people really expected me to do, of course, coming from my background, right. That everyone expected this to be the hatchet job, um, on cone and which would really be one note. And my feeling is if you humanize someone like Roy Cohn, if you can make, if you can try to understand some of what, where he was coming from, it doesn't mean you have to forgive him. It's just, it helps him have less power over all of us. I think, I think it's, a, it's a way of diffusing the power and saying, Here's a, he, he's, he was a person too who lived in hiding and who did horrible things and obviously specifically to my family. But I think that that, that just doesn't get us anywhere. Uh, the New York Times worried about whether you could be, quote, objective about Roy Cohn. Do you consider objectivity to be an issue? No, I, I wasn't. I never claimed to be objective. That this is all filtered through my experience. Everything about this film, from using Angels in America to talking about his life in Provincetown, these are the things that interest me and that intersect with my own life and what and what have made me curious and 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 wanting to know more about Cone. And I would add one thing: the film adheres to the principles of accuracy. All the facts in this film are true facts, and that's a very important thing about it. Absolutely, and thank you for pointing that out, because whether, you know, even though, yes, it's this impressionistic piece in some ways, I am absolutely adamant about having journalistic integrity. Ivy Mirapol's documentary about Roy Cohn, Bully, Coward, Victim, is playing now on HBO On Demand through July 23rd. Ivy, thanks for this film, and thanks for talking with us today. Thank you so much. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. Our audio engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is the nation's engagement editor. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Katrina Vanden Heuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. For more principled progressive journalism from The Nation, you can subscribe online to our print and digital magazine at thenation.com 
backslash podcast subscribe with this special discount for Start Making Sense listeners. You can get digital access to all our articles for less than $1.50 a month. Or you can have our print magazine delivered to you for just 60 cents an issue. That's at thenation.com backslash podcast subscribe, one word. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com. You can subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or Pocket Casts. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.